1: Hello everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War episode 140. Thank you this week goes out to Bill for choosing to support this podcast on Patreon, where he now gets access to special Patreon-only episodes, like our recent ones on the evolution of artillery during the war. You can also get these episodes or just check out information about the podcast over at patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar. This week, we continue our story of the French and British 1917 offensives. Last episode, we focused mainly on the planning that occurred in late 1916 and early 1917 that would set up the events for the rest of the year. These discussions between the French and British military and political leadership would lead to a plan for a simultaneous attack in early 1917. This week, we will dig deeper into the situation in March and April 1917, along with the French plans for the attack. At the end of this episode, we will also talk briefly about the German situation before the attack began, how they were preparing for it, and precisely what they knew of the coming French efforts. We begin today by looking at some of the details of Neville's planned attack. To carry the offensive forward, Neville had four army groups that he was going to use, which was for all intents and purposes the entirety of the French army. The main three army groups would be the North, Center, and Reserve, under Diaspre, Patan, and Micheler, respectively. If the armies had been left in the line where they had started the year, then the main attack would have been on the Shem de Dom and would have fallen under Patan's command. However, Nivell did not really consider this. He didn't like this. He didn't like Patan, really. I and mean, They just didn't get along very well and so instead he created the reserve army group under General Micheler and placed them in the line to be the primary driver for the coming attack. The final of the four army groups, Army Group East, would be under de Casenal, and it would just provide supporting attacks for the other three. In total, there would be about 1.2 million men involved in the attacks, many of these in supporting attacks along the front, in the hope of preventing the Germans from rushing reinforcements to the Shem de Dam. For this plan to be successful, the French had to make the Germans believe that the main attack could fall anywhere. They would fail at this task for reasons we will discuss later. Due to their central place in our narrative, let's focus on Mischler's army group for just a bit. Under his command, he had three armies, the 6th Army under General Mangin, and the 5th Army under General Maisel, and then the 10th Army under General Duchesne. Mangin was positioned on the left with 17 divisions. And Mangin's role in the attack was somewhat interesting, due to the exact nature of the German line on this part of the front. On Mangin's left, would, he would be attacking directly east into the German lines, pretty much what you would expect on the western front. However, east of Soissons, the German line bent back and ran almost straight east-west for 10 miles, at which point it then bent back south. This put Mangin in the interesting position of actually having most of his troops attack north, which is not something that you would generally consider when talking about the Western Front. Overall, Mangin was very optimistic, as he always was, and he believed that his men could advance basically a kilometer an hour, with six kilometers captured in the first six hours, which was a very bold estimate. To Mangin's right was Maisel's Fifth Army. Maisel had 19 French divisions and two Russian brigades under his command, along with 128 tanks to assist. The goals of the 5th Army were even more ambitious than mansions, with the first six hours expected to yield 8 kilometers of advance. With the 6th Army attacking mainly north, and the 5th Army attacking east, this would then set up the 10th Army which was positioned behind them. Once the line was opened up by the advance of the other two armies, the 10th and its 13 infantry divisions and a cavalry corps would break into the German rear areas on the second day of the attack and push it forward. If all went well, the 10th would be 25 kilometers beyond the original front line by the second day and be out in the open. To accomplish all these lofty goals, all of the normal activities had to be done to prepare the area. Roads behind the front were widened significantly to facilitate the movement of men, guns, and supplies. Huge supply dumps were created for the artillery, and gun emplacements were set up to house the guns while they fired. Mile after mile of telephone cable was laid to provide communications." Neville would also provide the attacking troops with a large number of Chauchet machine guns, roughly equivalent to the British Lewis gun, if you can picture that in your mind, in the hopes that these guns would provide for more mobile firepower for the infantry. There were also several 37 millimeter portable cannon that would be taken forward by two men teams in the hopes that these could deal with German machine gun positions. All of these preparations were completed on a massive scale, but there was still hope that the French could maintain the element of surprise. While the French would be committing over a million men to the attack, they would also be using their tanks for the first time in a large-scale attack. There would be two main types of tanks that would be used by the French in 1917, the Snyder and the saint chamond Even though the British often get the prize and publicity for the first usage of tanks in war, the first order for French tanks were placed just two weeks after the British had ordered theirs, and the French ordered more of them. The only problem for the French was that the production of these tanks would take quite a bit longer than for the British, which would result in the British fielding their tanks in 1916 and the French having to wait until 1917. The two different types of tanks were very different, with the Schneider being the smaller and far more numerous of the two. The Schneider weighed in at 13 tons, which was heavier than originally planned because they realized during the initial trials that they had not put enough armor on the tank initially, so they had to strap some more armor onto the tanks that had already been created and then change the design for later uh, vehicles. Much like the early British tanks, the Schneider's was underpowered, with just a 70 horsepower engine to pull it across the battlefield. Now, 70 horsepower is not a lot. Uh, For reference, I happen to own a Toyota Prius C, which has about 73 horsepower, and I can also tell you that it weighs about 13 times less than the Schneider, so 70 is not a whole lot. With the small engine, the Schneider was obviously not going to set any land speed records. It had a top speed of just 6 kilometers, or 3.7 miles, per hour. But tanks are not purely based around speed, at least at this point in history and the Schneider was armed with a 75mm gun mounted on the right-hand side of the vehicle, and then two Hotchkiss machine guns, one on either side. This was not a ton of firepower by World War I standards, and due to the mounting of the 75mm gun on the front right corner of the tank, uh, this became a quite an ugly vehicle, at least in my opinion. The other type of tank was the Schenstermalm. This tank was even larger than the Schneider, weighing in at a whopping 23 tons. It was powered by a 90 horsepower engine which gave it a theoretical top speed of 12 kilometers per hour, a speed that it had no hope of reaching on the battlefield. If you look at a picture of the Saint-Chamon, the first thing you will notice is that the tank had a very large gun pointing straight out the front. This was a 75mm cannon, just like, the, just like the field gun, and in later models it would be the exact same as the field gun, with earlier models mounting a slightly modified one. This cannon was mounted on the nose of the tank, a nose that hung far out over the tracks, making it quite difficult to navigate the battlefields of 1917. It would be armed by, with four machine guns as well. One of the features of both French tanks and something that really set them apart from the British tanks was the placement and size of the tracks. Much like the British, the French had started their tank design process by looking at farm tractors and then building up from there. For the British, this resulted in the rejection of the small and narrow tracks of those tractors, with their replacement being the tracks that went all around the body of the tank, probably the defining characteristic that most people know about British tanks during the war. The French did not radically redesign the tracks in this way, and instead stuck with tracks that looked very similar to what was present on the farm tractors. This would severely hamper the ability of French tanks to move around the battlefield. And I encourage everyone to go find a picture of these two tanks because I think it makes it quite obvious and maybe a bit comical with how small the the tracks are that they will have issues on the battlefield, especially the Saint-Chamon. Nivelle planned to deploy as many tanks as possible for the attack, and the Schneiders were available in large numbers, and were organized into four tank batteries, and then those four batteries were meant to be organized into groups, so really they were sort of set up like the artillery. Now some of these groups were formed just a month before the attack began, with tanks coming in hot off the factory floor, and with little time for the troops to get any training time with them. This push to get tanks to the front would pay off, with 128 Schneiders used for the attack. These would be joined by four St. Shamans later in the offensive. Overall, the performance of these tanks would be disappointing. Much like earlier armored efforts, there would be problems with tank reliability and with their mo- mobility on the battlefield. However, unlike previous armored efforts, there would also be the problem that the Germans uh, had already had some experience fighting tanks. Maybe they weren't these tanks, but they were tanks. Even if they did not have perfect countermeasures worked out for the tanks, it robbed the French tanks of any of their shock value that they could have had if they had been deployed earlier, or if the British tanks had not existed. As with previous attacks, the French divisions on the Chem de Dame were well supplied with artillery. The 5th and 6th armies alone would be given over 5,300 guns, including 1,600 heavy guns. This would give a concentration of a field gun every 21 meters and a heavy gun every 20 meters. This was far more than previous French attacks, and they would begin firing at the beginning of April, although the first few days, it would be strictly registration and counter-battery fire. The French would try to limit the amount of fire in these first few days to try and hide their true intentions, but by April 5th, they would ratchet up the intensity all the way until April 16th when the attack would begin. The biggest problems would be keeping the guns fed as they went through a huge number of shells. Most of this difficulty came from the weather, but when all was said and done, during the entire course of the attack from April 1 to May fifth, the French would fire 11 million rounds. A critical component of these artillery barrages was observation from the air. For this effort, the French devoted hundreds of reconnaissance and spotting aircraft, but they would run into some problems. The first of these was once again the weather. In the two weeks before the attack, there was only one day that had completely clear weather. Every other day had fog, rain, snow, or strong winds, or some combination of all four. This made any kind of accurate artillery observation within the air very difficult, and it was only complicated further by the Germans. At this point in the war, the Germans owned the skies over the French front, and this included the area over the coming attack. Since the artillery observation had to be done either over the line or beyond it, this made the job of French artillery spotters very challenging, risky, and deadly, but they did their best.
0: Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.
2: Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress, Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass, risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story.
1: While the men at the front were experiencing issues trying to execute on the plans, there were also problems back at headquarters, even if they did not know it. The best way to describe the situation at Neville's headquarters was that the officers and Neville himself were only considering the best possible scenarios for the upcoming attack. They believed that the attack itself was a foregone conclusion, and because of this belief they spent their time talking about what they should do after the attack was a success. This extremely positive thinking led them to begin to extend the goals for the opening attack. Suddenly, the planned advances got faster, and they penetrated further. At one point, planning was being based on men advancing 100 meters a minute, which was faster than the pre-war French regulations planned for road marching. It basically amounted to the men marching a 16-minute mile, which was a pretty good pace under the best of conditions. These men were expected to hit this pace while loaded down with equipment, across the shattered battlefield, and against German opposition. Not exactly reasonable. All of these extensions were due to Neville and his staff constantly wanting to set up for their next move. Just a little more here, and then we can go there. Or just this extra kilometer, and then we have this position that then lets us do this later. This kind of thinking would then snowball into complete impossibility, and you end up with the French having to basically run to meet their objectives. The positivity at headquarters would also trickle down to the troops at the front. They saw the optimism of the officers and the massive preparations underway, and it shot their expectations through the roof. Not since August 1914 had French soldiers been reported to sing the Marseillaise on the way to the front, but here they were reported to have done so. It was as if the morale of the French army was cresting some giant hill. What they did not know is that they were on a roller coaster, and they had just reached the top, and there's only one way to go from here. If you remember from last episode, part of the changes that occurred around the time that Joffre was replaced was also the naming of a new French Minister of War— I did not go into too much detail at that time, but the new minister was Paul Pingleaf. He was one of the first of the French government to voice serious concerns about the coming offensive. He tried to persuade Neville to make the attack smaller, to reduce the risk, but he realized that he couldn't really make Neville do anything. This would be a problem for the French government in the run-up to the attack. Even as concerns grew among many in the government, they were unable to force any action on Neville due to his support in the press and other areas of the government. He had been able to gain the support due to his persuasive abilities, but also just due to his optimism and enthusiasm, qualities that had been in high demand for years and had been mostly lacking for a while now. These factors made it nearly impossible for either the politicians or other French generals to truly change Neville's plans, not that they would not try. These attempts would start with perhaps the most important man in the entire army, General Micheler, command of the reserve army group which was responsible for the attack. He had been personally placed in this command by Neville, but he had some concerns. These concerns were mostly based around the idea that the situation at the front had drastically changed since the end of 1916 when the attack was first being planned. In his mind the largest of these changes was the German withdrawal to the Hindenburg line, which meant that the planned attack on the salient had to be cancelled and the Germans were able to move more men into the line of the attack that was now planned and the Germans were also able to bring more divisions into reserve, waiting to defend against just the kind of attack that the French were going to launch. These doubts would result in Mischler reaching out to Painlevé directly on March 22nd. In this communication, he stated that he believed that there was a very small chance of successful attack. When Painlevé discussed this matter with Mischler, the general could, would not go so far as to say that the attack should be cancelled, just that he had some concerns. These communications convinced Painlevé that he needed to talk to all of the army group commanders to get their opinions on the situation. When he reached out to them, he found that Patan was, of course, not a fan of the planned attacks, expressing grave concerns in the ability of Neville's methods to produce the results he was promising. Basically, he just had no faith that the strategies that had worked at Verdun would apply to other areas of the front. Desprey was slightly more cagey with his comments. He tried not to criticize Nivell too directly, but he did say that he believed that the German defenses in the area of the attack were strong and well prepared, and that they were expecting an attack in the area by this point, which was late March. With the start date of the attack getting closer and closer, there was a series of meetings during the first week of April with French political and military leaders. Since these were during the first week of the month, they actually took place after the artillery preparations had begun. These meetings would boil down into an attempt by the government to try and postpone, cancel, or change the attack in some way. payne argument was based around the fact that the situation was changing in Russia. The Americans were looking like they were about to enter the war, and the German front had changed so drastically. And these three reasons were good enough reasons that the attack should be changed. Neville, of course, resisted any attempts to change the plan. He claimed that the situation in Russia made the French attacks even more important, and that it would take the Americans too long to contribute to the war, so there was no point in waiting. Neville closed the meeting by first making sweeping gestures at the map on the wall, indicating all the gains that the attack would achieve. And then he made a promise. This is really important. He made a promise to call off the attack if it did not succeed in 48 hours. Neville did not believe this promise would cost him anything. He planned on being through the German lines and in open country in 48 hours. And while these two gestures by Neville closed the meeting for the day, any positive feelings that they may have created in the politicians' minds soon evaporated. During the next few days, several French leaders visited Micheler and other French generals at the front to get their assessment on the situation, and none of those assessments would fall in Neville's favor. General Massimi, a former minister of war, would write to President Rabot and say that he predicted a complete failure of the attack with heavy losses to go along with it. He closed out his letter to the president with, quote, I summarize here the opinions of the most highly regarded leaders of the army and most notably the leader himself who will direct the approaching offensive, General Micheler. Quote. These assessments would lead to the next round of meetings on april sixth. This meeting was attended not just by Neville and the French political leaders, but also all of the Army group leaders, Patin, de Cassanon, de Espray, and Micheler himself. No official minutes were taken of this meeting, in hopes that this would encourage frank and honest discussion. This limits our ability to know exactly what was said, and what we do know comes from second-hand accounts written after the war, so a grain of salt is necessary with the next you know, three minutes of discussion here. Here is the best information that we have. Once again, leave brought up the Russian and American situations, and Neville once again claimed that the situation in Russia demanded action, and the Americans would come in so late that they would have no chance of entering the, in, ending the war in 1917. In these ways, the meeting proceeded much like the earlier one. However, it was two comments from two of Neville's subordinates that would be the most important pieces of the conversation. First was de Kassendal, who said that if the government did not believe in Neville's plans, they should dismiss him. Neville, seeing that this was the case, offered to resign on the spot, claiming that since I am in agreement neither with the government nor my own subordinates, my only course open for me is to resign. Then the second of Neville's subordinates, and to everyone's surprise it was Patan, would say, "'You cannot submit your resignation at this moment. That would have a very bad effect in the army and on the country.'" And that is sort of where the meeting ended. And with it was the last serious attempt to call off the attack— had ended with Neville refusing to change his mind, but unable to resign due to morale concerns. On the other side, the government had completely lost faith in the plan, but they were unable to remove Neville due to those same morale concerns. What neither party knew was that the uh, impending course of action was going to cause those same morale concerns to happen, uh, and they pretty much lost their last chance to stop it. As he would about so many other moments during the war, Winston Churchill would chime in on this situation writing only as Churchill could. So Neville and Painley found themselves in the most unhappy positions which mortals can occupy, the commander having to dare the utmost risk with an entirely skeptical chief behind him, the minister having to become responsible for a frightful slaughter at the bidding of a general in whose capacity he did not believe, and upon a military policy of folly of which he was justly convinced. The last few weeks before the attack have greatly shaped how history looks at Neville. Much of the negative view of him comes from his tendency to completely ignore any and all concerns from other very smart, very capable, and very experienced men. David Murphy would say on this subject that, quote, Some of the classic and negative traits that we associate with First World War commanders are sadly visible with Neville. He held tenaciously to a belief in the offensive despite ample proof of the costliness of these methods— he was also guilty of ignoring evidence that did not fit in his operational assumptions." Quote. It is easy to see how he got to this point, though. Instead of embracing criticism, Neville had actively discouraged his staff from any form of negative debate or discussions about possible unfavorable outcomes. Instead, he focused on planning for the best possible outcomes, which they then honed to a fine edge, sometimes too far. When there were concerns outside of those that he could directly control, like from Patan or Micheler or someone in the government, he just stonewalled them and dug in harder on his stance that he was correct. And this tendency to just keep going, to stubbornly continue on his path, would play a big part in the narrative of the upcoming attack. One item that I mentioned last week and that was considered crucial to the success of the attack was surprise. While Neville considered this an important aspect, he did nothing to ensure that it actually occurred. Neville would discuss his upcoming plans in some detail while civilians visited his headquarters. These discussions included precise details about timing and location. There were also the constant discussions with politicians and other generals, both from Britain and France, and these conversations meant that the number of people who were inside on his plans was far beyond what was reasonable to maintain secrecy. In this type of environment, the information was bound to find its way into German hands. By February, it was said that the basic of Neville's plans were being discussed at every café in Paris. It was also around this time that the Germans began to collect some hard information from captured documents at the front pointing to the attack. With this information, even just the broad strokes that they could easily come by, the Germans knew basically where the attack would land, and this allowed them to bring in more troops and artillery. This would result in the number of German troops opposite the 5th and 6th armies going from 9 to 18 divisions. Along with his infantry, the Germans also brought in a large amount of artillery. There had been just 90 German guns in February on the sector of the attack, but over 500 would be there by the time it began. These German build-ups would then, in turn, be noticed by the French, but even as this information began to trickle back to Neville, he refused to change his plans. The French may not have had precise numbers. There were problems with German aerial superiority in the weather. But they knew that the number of German infantry divisions opposite them had increased. One source of this information was German communications, which the French had broke the German codes earlier in the year, and they could use them at this time to read mostly anything the Germans said. Even with all this information, Neville still refused to change his plans. Now we will finish out this episode by discussing the German situation for just a bit, and there were two important changes for the Germans before the attack was launched in April. The first was the retreat earlier in the year, and the second was the chains in German defensive doctrine, also earlier in the year. When it came to the retreat, while it was voluntary, it was also a necessity for the Germans. During the autumn of 1916, work had already begun on the Hindenburg Line, which stretched over 140 kilometers and was built by a workforce of 65,000 men. The entire goal from the beginning was to create a new position that would allow the Germans to retreat, shorten their front, and move some divisions into reserve. All of these goals were accomplished, and after the retreat, Operation Albrecht was what the Germans called it, they were able to move ten divisions out of the line. It would be partially these divisions that would be sent south to meet the French attack. The second change was some changes in German defensive doctrine. At the end of 1916, Ludendorff had put in place a new defensive strategy, a more elastic defense than what the Germans had been doing up to this point. In the first three years of the war, the Germans had a pretty rigid form of defense. There were trenches and troops in them, and they were expected to hold them at all cost. There had been some changes in terms of what percentage of these troops were in the very front lines, but the theory had always remained the same. The new defensive tactics were quite different. At a basic level, the Germans would leave the front line almost entirely empty, with just a few observation posts to report on enemy activity. Then behind that line there would be a zone occupied by strong points manned by machine gunners and a few other troops. These positions would not be a continuous line, but would instead be dispersed, either in dugouts or just strung out into shell holes. The movement out of lines and into shell holes had been a tactic used in the later stages of the Somme defense, and had proven successful at reducing the effectiveness of British artillery, since it spread the German troops out over a larger area. Now everything I've talked about so far, the observation area and then the strong point positions, it was all sort of just assumed that they would fall into the enemy's hands as they attacked. They were just there to sort of disrupt and slow down the attack. The final piece of the new defenses was the final area, which is where the Germans were actually going to start resisting and they actually wanted to hold on to. These final lines would as frequently as possible be on the reverse slopes of hills to protect it from artillery. And a critical piece of this defense would be counterattack troops stationed near the front, with orders to react to the attack as soon as possible. German leaders realized how critical it was that these counterattacks be launched quickly. And so they gave officers in the units holding the line and in the counterattack units as much autonomy as possible on how and when to launch their attacks, to prevent any delay as they communicated with their superiors. This entire defensive scheme was designed to absorb the first push from the French and British, which with their artillery advantage they'd become really good at accomplishing while also sustaining a minimal number of German casualties, and then right as the Entente troops were running out of steam in that first attack, which they had become really good at executing, then bam, they were hit by the maximum amount of German strength in a German counterattack. Now, if you want a lot more information about these changes, there's an entire Patreon episode pretty much dedicated solely to them, so I encourage anybody to go check that out. While the Germans had given their troops a new defensive plan for 1917, they also had defenses that they had been building up for almost three years. They had first occupied this area of the front after the retreat from the Marne, way back in September 1914, and since that time they it had been a pretty quiet sector, and the Germans had been busy improving its defenses. They controlled the ridge line and they had planted the normal types of defenses like barbed wire, machine gun nests, trenches, deep dugouts, all the items that the German defenses had become known for. They were also able to take advantage of abandoned underground stone quarries that dotted the ridge. These created the perfect shelters for German troops before the attack. They were completely artillery proof and large enough to allow counterattack troops and supplies to remain safe. The Germans had built their entire defensive system around these mines and shelters, with their exits perfectly placed to provide maximum assistance to the defenses. Outside the Hindenburg Line, these were probably some of the most formidable German defenses on the entire front. While the Germans would eventually have a pretty decent idea of what the French were about to do, this was not where they started 1917 at. At the beginning of 1917, they had a pretty general idea about possible areas of the front where the French could attack. For example, it was unlikely that the French would attack in the far south in the Vosges Mountains, but they did not know precisely where on the front it would fall, it could really be anywhere. They were of course doing activities like gathering up as much information as possible, determining the positioning of French reserves, and looking at French railway usage, and these activities would lead them to believe that the attack would occur along the Anne River in Champagne as early as February, this just based on where the French were building up their forces and supplies. In March, serious dominoes began to fall into place, though. This began with a raid on March 3rd, during which the Germans captured a very important document. Here is Crown Prince Wilhelm who would describe this document. The French Regulation Document, known as Instructions Concerning the Aim and Conditions of a General Offensive. This had been implemented by General Neville on 16 December 1916. It contained highly valuable information. It made clear that this time it was not going to be an attack on a specific target, but a sweeping breakthrough offensive, end quote. At the end of the month, on March 31st, they captured a French officer who was carrying fully marked maps, signal instructions, and radio codes. These pieces of information allowed them to rush last-minute reinforcements into the area. Then in April, they found out more information, which they captured on April 5th. This contained the precise orders for two divisions and three corps of the French army. Incredibly valuable information. By this point, the Germans knew about as much as the French did about what was about to happen. And the craziest thing is the French knew that they knew. Now the stage was set, though. They had to actually launch the attack, and they had to defend it, even if they both knew what was going to happen. I hope you will join me next episode as we cover the beginning of these attacks in what is set up to be another very long episode.